Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. This is a STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor. This is an STS special, Surviving My Biggest Case with Lieutenant Lisa Daddio. She is our best guest. We bring on our best guests who are in law enforcement to talk about the biggest cases of their career. Little background about Lieutenant Daddio. She is a retired police lieutenant with the New Haven Police Department in Connecticut. She spent approximately 16 years in the detective division uh, since retiring from the New Haven Police Department uh, back in 2012. She has worked in higher education, teaching courses at both the undergraduate and graduate level at the University of New Haven. And uh, she joins joins us today to talk about a case that made the headlines. So uh, Lisa, what year was this? Uh, just take us back to the call that night, I guess. Yeah, so believe it or not, uh, this case was from 2009 and it truly changed just everything, um, both in regards to relationships, both inside and outside the police department at that time. For me personally, it was the biggest case that I've ever been involved in. And to this day, here we are in 2023, and I'm still talking about it. Um, It's a case that has uh, aired and been on Investigation Discovery, on the Oprah Network, on the Forensic Files, on uh, Snapchat, through Snapchat videos, and there's been just, gosh, I, I couldn't even begin to, to say how many interviews over the years. So it's definitely one of those cases that in your career, you can never think would be as big as it is. And yet here we are um, a long time later talking about it. Back in 2009, I was second in charge of the major crimes division. Uh, the division at that time was headed by an assistant chief. And then there was me. And then underneath me, there were approximately 100 officers, uh, detectives, sergeants working for me that covered everything that you can imagine. So um, that night, uh, September 8th, 2009, we were not initially involved in this case. And and I'll tell you why. Um, It came in through the Yale University Police Department that one of their graduate students by the name of Annie Lay had not come home um, from class and, and or doing her duties, I should say. She wasn't necessarily supposed to be in class that that day. But her roommate had called the Yale University Police Department to report her missing. Now, the way that it works with Yale University in the city of New Haven is they're a police, their own police department. Um, they come underneath Yale University. However, they fall underneath the New Haven Police Department as well. And so they are responsible for patrolling and investigating most crimes that happen to Yale students and on Yale campus. The exceptions are um, major cases, if you would, assault first, um, sometimes sexual assaults, that's at the discretion of the victim, Definitely any shootings or, or stabbings or, God forbid, a homicide of a student, it automatically comes to us. 
um, on the New Haven side, but they handle the smaller stuff that happens on campus and they patrol their grounds and, and they will assist us at times, depending on what's going on. So Yale responded um, to Annie's apartment and met with a roommate to take a missing person report. Uh, they went, they tried to track uh, down Annie. They went to, she had an office in a medical building near a research building because she was a graduate student uh, that was doing research. And um, she had actually received a at least a million dollar grant, if not a multi-million dollar grant from the NSF, the National Science Foundation, to uh, do research on basically fast food and how it impacts humans. Um, but she utilized mice and, and I'm, I'm simplifying all of that. And for those who don't, and for those who aren't really aware of like graduate studies, it's different than undergraduate. So she probably spent a lot of time just in a lab because uh, I've had a couple of friends go through PhD programs. So they basically live in a lab, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so like, you know, a little bit about Annie, and, and I think it's important to always talk about the victimology when we talk about these horrific cases is she was a brilliant, uh, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Um, the work that she had done, even as an undergraduate student at the University of Rochester, is is just staggering. Um, and she definitely would have been someone that had an impact on whatever scientific uh, studies and, and research that she had done had things not happened. Mm -hmm. So Yale University Police Department go to her research office. Um, they look for her there. She's not there. But, you know, oddly enough, her cell phone was there. Um, some personal belongings are there. And you got to remember, this was 2009. So nowadays, typically, no one is ever anywhere without their cell phone attached to somewhere on their body. Mm -hmm. So, you know, like that's always one of the things that we have to think about is you have to remember when the crime occurred as to really the way things were then versus the way they are now. We can't put our 2023 glasses on and say, well, what the heck, you know? There's no way anybody, in 2009, we weren't so married to our phones like we are now. Yeah. So then, you know, they, they reached out to her research um, advisor to see if, you know, he had seen her and he had said, no, you know, we were supposed to have a meeting. Uh, however, I had to cancel it. And so like all of this stuff had kind of happened this one day. So then they start, you know, looking at things. They reach out to transportation to see if, you know, she had caught a bus somewhere. They start looking at hospitals to see if she was there. Kind of like making sure that all the box are checked because we have this like missing person type of thing. Now, what's and, was, and I'm sorry, it was it was the roommate, her roommate at the time back in 2009, who called and said Annie didn't come home. Right. Yeah. And Annie was supposed to be um, leaving. Actually, she was due to get married that weekend um, to her college sweetheart, Jonathan. And so, like, she was kind of just going into the office and, and going into her research lab to kind of get everything ready for her to be gone for a prolonged period of time in order to get married. Um, and, what time and of year was this? It's got to be either May or September. I it was actually September. <laughs> okay. So you were right. Yeah, it was actually, it was around September 8th. Uh, actually it was September 8th, 2009 that she went missing. Um, and so, you know, she was due to get married that weekend. 
So again, you know, Yale does what they do. The New Haven Police Department isn't involved in this at all. The, the following morning, I'm, I'm driving into work, my cell phone rings, and here I am talking to you about cell phones, but uh, my cell phone rings and it's a sergeant from the Yale University Police Department saying, hey, you know, uh, we're investigating this missing person case, you know, and, and he tells me the whole background of it. Uh, he goes, do you have any resources that you can spare, you know, we're a little concerned about this case. It's not like her to have gone missing. Uh, she's due to get married. We don't know what we have going on and we can use a couple uh, detectives if you can spare them. I said, yes, absolutely. You know, and that's what we do. I assign, um, believe it or not, a sergeant and a couple of detectives from one of our divisions over there that handle missing persons. And it kicks off. They Yale University puts out a flyer. They distribute it amongst their internal network. Um, and they start looking for Annie. At the same time, they start looking uh, at video. There's a lot of CCTVs at that time that were all over the place, both uh, predominantly on the exterior part of the Yale buildings at that time, um, to see if they can see Annie coming in uh, or leaving at any point in time. And they are actually able to track her um, and her movements up until around uh, 9, 30, 10 o'clock that day that she goes missing. And then okay. after that, she never shows. What's that? And do you remember, so September 8th, you remember what day of the week that was by any chance? The gut of me wants to say it was a Thursday um, okay. or a Wednesday. Um, I only asked because she's getting married that either probably Saturday or Sunday, right? Yes. Um, so you guys, uh, obviously... Um, and I might be getting ahead of myself, but does anyone contact her fiance, Jonathan, to say, uh, and the family, obviously, to say that they are, you know, she's missing. We're looking for her. And, and he's got to be thinking. And I, you know, I remember the story because it was a massive story I mean, yeah, all over the place. And I remember some people, if I remember correctly, thinking that maybe she got cold feet or something. But did yeah. you guys? Yeah. And That's I don't 100% even... right. You're right. I mean, it was a major um a major incident at the time. And internally, that's exactly what they were thinking, that she got cold feet. Mm. Um, you know, Annie was mirroring outside of her culture. Um, and, and so, you know, without really knowing her family from an investigative standpoint, you know, when you have that, and at the time there was a lot of this whole runaway, uh, runaway bride mm. thing that was going on. Um, and there was a lot of talk of that. Yale University did reach out to her fiance. He also had been trying to contact her. He was down on Long Island um, and he had not been able to get in contact with her at all, which according to him at that time was very unusual. Mm. Um, and so he obviously was very concerned and ended up coming up to Connecticut uh, that evening that she was originally reported missing that evening, early morning hours um, as well to help. And, and throughout the entire investigation, Jonathan was phenomenal um, as to the information he was able to provide to the early onset investigators, uh, including family contact and everything. Um, and at the time, you know, the, Yale was trying to get in touch with her mother. Um, her mother was traveling. Mm. Because she's obviously coming over to the East Coast. Her family was based out of California. 
Um, and, and so, you know, there was a lot of that where we weren't able to get initially in contact with her mom. And so, um, you know, there was a lot of that going on. So anyway, you know, back to the whole, we, we get her on camera. Um, and again, she, it's being treated as a missing person case with maybe a runaway bride theme to it initially. Um, I had detectives and a sergeant from the New Haven Police Department that were involved in it just to provide support to Yale, to help them interview people, to reach out to people at the Yale Research Building, which was a multi-level uh, building where research is done. Um, and so that's what they were doing. They were a completely supplementary type of agency at this point. We were not the lead. Yale was the lead because it was a missing person case. End of story. Then that all changed. Um, as the investigation was ongoing, as they started digging for some more things, um, I get a call from, at the time, one of the sergeants who said, you know, you may want to come down here. They found some blood in Annie's lab. And prior to this time, the FBI was involved. Uh, they got involved in the case, originally thinking possible abduction, um, whether or not it was familial um, or something else. The F uh, Yale University had requested FBI's assistance in this case as well, plus their capabilities that they have to help. And, and again, not thinking, honestly, no we weren't thinking violent crime. We, again, the kind of thought process was this was a family thing or runaway bride type of thing. Um, they knew none of her credit cards had been utilized. We obviously had her phone. Um, and but, how many days in was it uh, when the sergeant calls you and says, we think we found blood here? Three. Three days. So this is almost like the w actual wedding day, basically. Pretty close. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. It was very close to the wedding day. And did your, when you got that call, did your heart sink a little bit? Like, it did. My heart sank a lot of it. Um, yeah. And, you know, I reached out to, um, at the time, one of my sergeants who's on the major crime side told him to get a team together. And we all were meeting at the uh, FBI field office in New Haven mm -hmm. um, to have a, a big kind of update. All the parties were there. FBI was there. Yale University Police Department was there. Obviously, we were there. The U.S. Attorney's Office was there. The state's attorney's office was there. Again, because you know we, we have this kind of parallel thing going on, but yet not going on because we don't know what we have. However, we find blood in her lab. And it's and like- is, And is the media, because I was not at Fox 5 in New York yet, but I know the media covered this like extensively, but at this point, is the media already all over it? Are you feeling the pressure? Not yet. Um, but it's getting there because okay. literally, you know, as, as you know, and you've worked with big cases like this before, you always have leaks. Mm -hmm. So it starts to build, people are leaking information from multiple agencies. You know, we had them obviously in our police department, Yale university had them in their police department. And so then literally in a matter of, it seemed like minutes, it was longer than that. Um, the entire police department, New Haven Police Department, uh, I'm sure Yale was the same way. The research lab where this happened were swarming with media, literally camped out 24 hours a day, seven days a week until we made an arrest in this case. Um, we had 
a gag order put on the case from our state's attorney's office. Uh, everything, you know, we couldn't talk to anybody or any one about anything. We moved off site. We were operating out of the New Haven FBI field office because um, we couldn't even come anywhere near the police department without getting mobbed um, mm. by reporters. And we also had to keep the information about what was going on tight to only those on a need to know. Like, I, I remember having a conversation with my assistant chief and chief saying, you just have to trust me. And I can't tell you some things. Imagine telling your chief of police, I can't tell you, you wow. know, because I don't know where the information is being leaked. And I'm not saying mm -hmm. it was my chief or my assistant chief. However, I have the state attorney's office saying, you can't tell anybody what's going on with this case. Have the, have the chief take that news. So I got to say, the chief was good. And, and so was my assistant chief. And that doesn't always happen. So at the time, it was Chief James Lewis, who was phenomenal. Uh, and it was assistant chief Peter Reichard. And they trusted me. And, you know, I said to them, when I can tell you, I will tell you, but you just have to trust me. And they did. Um, that doesn't mean that I wasn't getting phone calls or text messages a thousand times a day. You know, any updates, any updates, any updates, that kind of stuff. Um, but they really they were phenomenal and they backed off and let me and my team do what we needed to do um, on this case. So again, one of those things that doesn't always happen. Um, but thankfully because of the leadership of them, they backed off. So, you know, we come in, we meet, uh, we have this whole round table discussion and it was determined that the New Haven Police Department would be the lead on this case. It was no longer a missing person case. We were going to be treating it as something other than that. And there was no jurisdiction by the FBI to investigate uh, something that had happened in a building. Um, so we took the lead and we worked around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, um, brought in dozens of other investigators. The Connecticut State Police were involved at this point. Uh, they provided incredible amounts of support to us and actually handled the processing of the lab um, and all the subsequent rooms of this research building where Annie, um, where the blood was found and, and tons of other stuff. So when, when the sergeant called that day and said, we found blood, was that like using luminol? Was it a very minimal amount of blood or was it? A no, actually it was visible blood. It was a, uh, wipe swipe type of, um, blood on a box of paper towels, if you would, mm -hmm. um, on a cart in Annie's lab room. Wow. And I'm not sure, you know, again, I think looking back, it's always easy, right? To say, oh, how did they miss that? You're mm -hmm. not thinking anything foul. You're thinking missing person, runaway bride. Mm -hmm. um, that there was, there was no evidence of anything foul and she's in a secure building, right? So why would you ever think that that's human blood? She works with animals. Is it possible it was animal blood? Um, no, <laughs> you know, Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you're not thinking anything. Uh, and I'm not sure, based upon the way the box was initially positioned, that unless you moved the cart, you would have seen it. The cart got moved after the fact. 
And that's when it became a visible from another person who said, there's blood on that box. Um, and so that changed the whole trajectory of the investigation, thankfully. But you got to remember something. At this point, the lab is open. The building is open for days. Nothing is secure. People are coming in and out of every anything. Anybody who has key card access, the, all the rooms are key carded. Um, anybody who has access can go in and out of her lab without anything. So thinking about contamination, loss of evidence for almost three days, it was a free for all. Wow. So it was wide open until you guys, till the sergeant calls about the blood. Then you guys kind of closed down the, uh, the scene, right? Locked yeah. Down the scene. That decision was, was made right away um, from the FBI, Yale university. Once that happened, they locked it down. Mm. Um, we weren't even fully involved at that point. Um, and are you, um, I mean, you talked about 24 seven, were you personally just going and going at the early onset? Were you sleeping? Were you, I, I slept, uh, believe it or not, we all did on couches or chairs at the FBI field office. Um, we would leave sometime in the morning, usually around 6am, go home, all of us shower, change our clothes, say hello to loved ones. And we were back and, and that, that was our life. Um, for almost a week, no exaggeration. Um, and you know, like people are like, how did you do it? The adrenaline that we all had was unlike, and, and that's not just with this case. It honestly is the adrenaline keeps us going for days when we first catch a homicide, um, or a serious incident. It kicks into everything and you can't sleep even if you wanted to sleep because your brain is going on what, what do you need to do? You know, what did you forget to do? Who do you need to talk to? Like, you just can't shut it off. And if you were to talk to any investigator that has investigated any type of major incident, they're all going to tell you the same thing. There is no sleep. It's impossible to even try to sleep um, while you're working a case that is serious. Um, enough, whether it's a bad domestic violence or a shooting or homicide, you know, something like that, violent crime specific, typically more than anything. And, and that's what we did. Um, and I remember, you know, and I, I'm getting ahead a little bit, like the night early morning that we're all typing and I say, we all, you know, we're all taking turns typing uh, an arrest warrant because we're exhausted. And so what happens when you're exhausted, your brain isn't working and you're going to make mistakes and we couldn't make a mistake on an affidavit, right? So we're literally all taking turns and then stepping away and then somebody else comes in and proofs it because we all knew the case like this. If I was to go down, there was five people behind me that can come in and, and that's the way the case was. And it was seamless. It worked unlike any other case of this magnitude ever had worked. Wow. And it was and different it, agencies. It wasn't just New Haven. You know, it was New Haven. It was FBI. It was the Connecticut State Police. Like, literally, we're sitting there and taking turns because we're exhausted at this point. Like, I mean, physically, you can't keep up the no sleep for five, six, seven days in a row. It just doesn't work because, right. you know, but it did. But the, but the pressure is intensifying every day because now the media is there, right? So. How do you, I mean, just for a quick, like, digression, how do you handle, like, the super high-profile nature of the case where, 
you know, like you're, you know, reporters are literally trying to run you uh, down to ask you questions. Right. Um, So what worked in that case was being at a completely different location that nobody knew about. And honestly, nobody's getting through the FBI uh, location. Mm-hmm. steel grates, guards, you know, they, there's no access for anybody to just walk in like there would be at the police department. So that was the biggest thing to help us. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I did is I, as the OIC, if you would, I shielded all that nonsense from my investigators and my sergeant that was on the scene at the time. They didn't need to get caught up in all that stuff. That was something that I dealt with, with my assistant chief, my chief and whomever else and and the whole political side of it, you know, and there was a lot of politics. Let me tell you, Um, you have a Yale student who goes missing and word is already out there that something bad had happened Uh, and it was bad. And then you have, you know, her family and her fiance that are listening to all this nonsense that isn't even accurate being reported in the media and they're asking us, well, you know, da, 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 da. And it's not true, but how do you tell them that? You know what I mean? And at the same time, we have to be careful at what we do tell them because we don't know what we have at this point. You know, when you say say like the politics, like, are you talking about like different jurisdictions plus the university and everyone just wants to make sure, you know, they're being told the right thing. And yes. and, And let's face it. It's Yale university. The most um, prestigious. Exactly. Who, this isn't the first Yale student that something bad had happened to. You know, we've had, tragically, you know, we've had Yale students get murdered in the city of New Haven. And, and so this wasn't the first case of this happening. This was actually the third. Um, and so Yale, rightfully so, and, and their reputation was very concerned about this and the, and the, appearance of what this is. Um, And at the same time, obviously very concerned about it from Annie's standpoint and the standpoint of her family uh, as well. And so thankfully my assistant chief dealt with Yale University and, and the president of Yale University and all of that. I did not, he handled that. He kept that away from me because I, I'm not one to get caught up in that kind of stuff. Let me do my job, leave us alone, and I can't get caught up in the politics of anything. And so him and the chief at the time took care of all of that pressure. And even pressure, let's face it, the mayor of the city of New Haven, he's dealing with both the police department side and Yale University. And so, you know, the mayor was phenomenal. Uh, mayor Stefano. he did not get involved at my level, which he had previously not involved. He's a mayor. He has the right to know. I work for him and the the people in the city of New Haven, right? Which includes Yale students. Mm -hmm. And this is different a little bit because she just kind of vanishes. Uh, There's no, there's no, at least at this point, there's no real scene yet. That's right. Yeah. Obviously when we, when the blood was found, I mean, like we came in, major crimes came in, you know, it, it geared up, um, but where is she? You know, that was the million dollar question from the day she went missing until here we are three days later is like, where the heck is she? 
And so you guys look at all the surveillance video and you do spot her, but then all of a sudden she, you stop seeing her and what, she at disappeared. what point disappeared. Okay. Yeah. So then what do you do? So, um, there are, my gosh, basically hundreds of hours of CCTV and video footage that had to be gone through. Cause there's a lot of different angles, both in the research building and everything surrounding it. So all of that feed has to be gone through. Plus what happens on the day that Annie goes missing is there was a fire alarm, completely unrelated. At first, we didn't think of that it was. We're like, there's no such thing as a coincidence. This was truly a coincidence. But um, the whole building had to evacuate. And it wasn't until we were days into this that, and we had analysts from the FBI, believe it or not, helping us comb through all the video uh, surveillance provided by Yale University, comb through and say with 100% certainty that they were sure that she never left the building during that fire alarm. Wow. Yeah. So we had now that. And so now it's like, okay, where is she? But remember the building was open. It's a medical research building. Every day, there's a waste removal, waste collection coming in from different um, vendors, I guess, that deal with biological evidence and non-biological. So we're like, did she go out with trash? Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about a five foot, maybe five one, maybe 90 pounds female. And that easily could have been discarded in something and not even recognized because the the dump trucks come, they lift the bins or whatever, and then they empty it and then they take off and then they go to a dump site. So, you know, with all this going on, we then put teams out at the waste um, centers, the incinerator plants, trying to backtrack when dumps were made, you know, trying to, and we had teams out there, um, again, thanks to the Connecticut State Police, the FBI, because we couldn't handle that with New Haven. We still have a city going on and, and crime still occurring. And, and we, you know, so thankfully those two agencies assisted us on that kind of stuff as well, trying to find her. Um, as the days go on, as the processing of her lab goes on, they actually utilizing luminol. And, and I'm sure everybody knows what that is, but it enhances blood. That's an attempt to be claimed that you can't see with the naked eye, but you apply a chemical to it, luminol, and you light up the room, uh, you luminesce it, and you could even see no matter what was used to clean it, you can see um, evidence of, of blood or biological fluids that are present. And that's what happens in this case. And how many days in are we when this happens? It, this all happens literally like within that first 24 hours that we're on scene and involved in this. So okay. it all happens that day that we have this big debriefing, uh, at the FBI. It literally all came together within 12, 24 hours. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Again, not that we planned it that way, but we shifted gears significantly, right? We had to. Um, And and we started finding other evidence. We found evidence that uh, 
the accused who has since pled guilty. I know we're kind of getting ahead a little bit, but there were evidence um, that he had discarded in biological waste boxes and in drop ceilings of the lab that had both Annie's DNA and his DNA on it. Like we started recovering all this kind of at that onset, that, that first, I believe it was a Saturday, actually, that Saturday and Sunday in the days following, we kept finding more and more evidence that he had hidden uh, throughout that lower level of the research building. Well, in the ceiling, you find that. In the ceiling, uh, in trash cans, yeah. Um, he hid things in drains. Um, it was honestly unlike any other case we've ever, ever um, investigated. And you talk about, you know, I always ask everyone the, the typical disorganized or organized. I'm like a little of both. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, disorganized because stuff is everywhere. Um but time, are you are you interviewing? I assume you're like interviewing all these graduate students who work in the lab to say, do you know anyone? Do you know anything? Have you seen yeah, anything? and we start looking at key card access um, mm. because, as I mentioned before, you know, this case, the only way you can get in or out of any of the rooms in the building are through key cards. So that became a huge part of this case and, and a phenomenal. Uh, Connecticut State Police detective actually is the one who started making the connections on that as he was tasked with going through all the key card access. Then again, Yale University was phenomenal. They provided everything to us that we needed. We didn't hit any roadblocks. Nobody claimed any privilege or anything. Like literally, it's like, what do you need? Um, And, and, you know, people may be like, well, yeah, of course they're going to do that. Yeah, it doesn't always work that way, as everybody knows. But, you know, they truly were whatever you need you have just give us time just let us know what you want they were phenomenal but you you literally you literally could track every single person who went through any door and know who it was at what time yes wow and that was a major major break in this case Uh, obviously the dna you can never ever dispute that but we didn't have that right away anybody who knows dna knows you don't get that right away so, but we did have the key card stuff right away. We did have the video and the CCTV stuff right away. Um, and so we started and, you know, the FBI um, and, and then obviously New Haven detectives were instrumental in interviewing all the people that had come into the building those days leading up to when the building was shut down. Um, and we identified, actually they identified somebody and I say they, Yale university slash the FBI identified somebody pretty early on only because it was the last person to see her alive, um, based upon his statement, who ends up being the person we subsequently arrest and charge. And he pled guilty, um, in this case. So, you know, yeah. (laughs) It's a wild story. So, um, so this one detective, he kind of tracks down. And so how do you start to get, uh, you know, to a person of interest here? I know some police don't like to use that term, but how do you start to figure out that a particular person might be involved and where do you go from there? Where do you pivot and how, how and how far into the investigation is this? So this is, again, you know, like everything kind of comes together on, on that Saturday, um, that we all are involved. Um, they had already interviewed 
the person of interest and you're right. We don't like using that term, um, but it is what it is. Right. So, you know, they had already interviewed him pretty early on. Uh, he gave a statement, he locked it in. They, the FBI agents that did the investigation or did the interview were phenomenal. You know, they noted that he had some injuries on his body. Uh, they took some pictures of it and um, they, he gave a statement to them, which we ended up sending, believe it or not, down to Quantico, the BAU, the true profilers, for to have them do a statement analysis as to what he said or didn't say, because that's not, you know, that's outside of most of our purview um, and expertise at that time. And so, you know, the, again, one of the resources that we had with having the FBI part of us and, and opening up their resources to us, which was phenomenal. Um, so we already had all that and, and we start looking at the key cards. So we're tying in all these different pieces, right? His statement, he's the last one to see her, you know, um, we have the fire alarm, then we have all the video surveillance and then like everything's starting to come together. And then we start looking at the key card access. And then we start looking at his key card access and her key card access. And her key card literally stops within a few minutes of her coming in and key carding. Like she key carded coming into the building and then obviously her lab and then she's gone. There's no more activity at all with her ever. His... He was an animal technician. He happened to take care of her room and multiple others. There's a ton of key card activity. Um, he comes into Annie's lab room after she had key carded in. Um, was in there, you know, it's hard to say because you don't have to key card out. But we know when he keeps going back in and it was repeated. And then we had all the key card access prior to the day Annie goes missing, then obviously, obviously subsequently after. And nowhere ever had his key card activity in her room and other rooms down in the basement ever been like they were. They lit up with activity up until we closed the building down. And you said he's a technician. Uh, was he a student at Yale or no? No, employee. Employee. So he just worked there as a technician. Okay. He did. Um, and when you... The original statement, this is before you kind of started to figure out what was going on. Did anyone flag anything in that? I mean, they took photos. They saw the injuries. But did anyone say, hey, this guy might be suspicious or. Yeah. Take yeah, they did. They did. And again, you know, like any you talk to any investigator, they're going to tell you, like, there's something that that goes off. You know, we, we talk about it as the sixth sense mm -hmm. and you can't describe it. Can you testify to that? Is there scientific basis on that? No. But. You ask anybody who's been doing investigations long enough and they'll tell you something just wasn't right. A gut feeling, we like to say, just had a gut feeling. Mm. And that's kind of what happened with them early on. But again, we have nothing at this point when, when they get this gut. It's like, mm, we have nothing saying, you know, anything bad happened. We're still going with this one runaway bride. Was she kidnapped? You know, was there this whole family thing going on? We don't know. And then, you know, the box is found with the blood on it. And then, you know, CSP, uh, Detective Ansalaka starts seeing, you know, weird key card activity. Mm -hmm. um, the video stuff is coming in. Like everything literally started coming together uh, around the same amount of time. And what's important to know, and, and I know like Saturday seemed like to be the pivotal day, 
um, we started smelling decomposition mm. in the building. Wow. Now, again, there's nothing in this world, nothing that smells like human decomposition. Animal decomposition, same thing. So we start smelling it. Wow. And we're all like, holy, she's in the building. Mm. Multi-million dollar lab building, multi-million dollar ventilation system, several floors, several rooms, several locations. Where the heck is she? And I got chills sitting here all these years later talking about it. And there's times when I talk about this case, I literally still get welled up about it because it was that impactful for all of us. We're like, because in a way we all wanted her to be alive. Yeah. We really never, ever thought that she was murdered. Mm. And now in the building, it was like, then it was a frenzy. Where is she? Well, but you all, I mean, unfortunately, that smell is not a smell that you forget uh, and you know right away. So you guys knew right away. You're like, she's got to be here somewhere. Right? Yeah. And we brought in a cadaver dog. Um, and, and so there was a lot of hoops we had to go through for that. Because remember, this is a multi-million dollar research facility that's doing multi-million dollars of research. And there are samples and research things there that you can't bring in a freaking dog yeah and i'm like hmm, don't care and they're like well yeah. i'm like don't care mm -hmm. and so that's what i mean we're like my chief and my assistant chief were phenomenal because i dealt with that and i'm like don't care mm -hmm. you know and, and again you know it was like well are there another way and i would talk to because i'm not a, i'm not a canine expert right? right and i would talk to my canine people they're like no there's no other way I mean, it has to be the dog. The dog's going to hit. We're going to know where to look. And I'm like, oh, and I report back. And they're like, all right, you know, try to keep it contained. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to try to keep it contained. We're going to go where the dog takes us. And um, by the way, there's irony there. This is like a state-of-the-art science facility, best investigators, all this. And it comes down to a dog and I love dogs. So I love to hear that. So the dog is the ultimate, um, arbiter has a great sense of smell. And so you, you bring this dog in and, and the dog like, alerts to an area in the basement where Annie's room is, you know, in this lower level and alerts to, um, a wall. And we're like, Whoa. Yeah. They're not wrong. You know what I mean? So it's not like you can say this dog is crazy and, and, and cuckoo, you know, for Cocoa Puffs type of thing. He's alerting to the wall. That means, and yeah, um, we, we, the Connecticut State Police, because we're maintaining scene integrity. We don't want contamination. We don't want cross, you know, uh, contamination. We don't want destruction of evidence. The Connecticut State Police end up finding Annie in a wall. Um, there was uh, a mechanical vat. So a lot of people don't know what that is. And it, it's basically, when I tell you what it is, you're going to know what it is. But it's a metal plate uh, that has screws in it. And in it typically are your shutoff valves for water or whatever. So if there's an issue, you just take it off and you adjust the shutoffs. And she was in there. 
uh, it was removed. She was put into the wall. Uh, and yeah, she was upside down. Um, but once the investigators- How big, how big a space is it? Oh yeah, gosh, it wasn't big at all. I mean, it, the wall was between um, like a utility room and, and a bathroom type of area. So she's uh -huh. in between the wall, you know, it was maybe this big. Wow. Um, and maybe a little bit bigger, but yeah, she was, she was in there. Um, and what, do you remember what day this is? Is this also Saturday? It was her oh. wedding day. Oh my God. It's awful. Um, is that Sunday? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. And, and, and so we find her, uh, on her wedding day. Um, yeah. So, you know, the CSP is just top notch and the Connecticut state police that is, they're just top notch. And so a plan is, again, we trust all one another. And this is why I said when I, you know, when I started this whole thing, talking about how we all came together, there was never a moment that I didn't trust what they were doing. Um, on any Avenue with the FBI, with the Connecticut State Police, with Yale University PD, with obviously my own team. Never once did I not trust, and we all communicated with one with one another. So it was like, okay, how do we get her out without damaging, with the least amount of damage to physical evidence? Mm -hmm. It's in a freaking wall. Yeah. So how do we remove her and then have dignity as well? And so the decision was made to actually go in through the opposite wall to do it very carefully um, and with, you know, medical examiner assistance as well to, to document the whole process, to remove the wall, to remove her um, with as little damage as can be done, preserving her, the crime scene. It's a separate crime scene at this point. Her evidence, I mean, her body's a crime scene. Wow. Um, and yeah, and, and so, you know, making the notification to her fiance and, and at this point, uh, her family was local um, and telling them that we found her um, on the day she was due to get married. Wow. Um, I don't yeah. even have to ask, but I imagine that did not go over very well. No. You know, people see us a lot of times as robots and for a lot of reasons we, we have to be, um, but that literally rattled uh, every single person working in this case. And not that if we found her the day before or the day after, it wouldn't have rattled us as bad, but it's like, oh my gosh, of all the days did we have to, you know, but we don't stop. We don't say, oh, we're just going to let her stay there to the next day so that there's not that event is it memorialized. Of course, we're not going to do that. Um, but yeah, so, um, you know, she's removed, she goes up for an autopsy. We get the results of the autopsy. Um, she sustained, uh, significant, um, bodily injuries. She was asphyxiated. She was basically strangled to death. Um, she had broken bones, um, yeah, it wasn't, uh, it was, it was, she died a horrific death um, and had gone through um, a significant assault 
most likely pre-mortem, meaning before death, um, based upon what we had. Do you find any like defensive wounds? Was she trying to stave this person off? Yeah, th- yeah, there were there were some defensive wounds as well. Um, but you know, again, it was a physical attack from what we can tell. So it's not like you would see knife wounds or, or anything like that. And then plus, she was upside down, so she had significant decomposition at mm. this point as well. Because on top of just regular decomp, she's upside down. So her lower, um, obviously, her all her upper extremities are at the lowest point which is having the greatest decomposition because that's where all the blood flow is going. Um, and, and so that was also, you know, impacting a lot of things because of the, the, the way the decomposition was happening. Um, but yeah. So at this point, um, this guy who you'd interviewed, who you thought was suspicious, do you have him in custody? Not yet. Um, so he, we, um, he had retained an attorney at this point, wanted him to come back in to talk to us this time, talk to investigators. He declined. Um, and this is, this would have been the second interview. And so, um, we had started talking to his attorney. Um, we had done prior to, I'm almost positive. It was prior to her being found, but I may not be right on that. Uh, we had done a search warrant for um, blood to be drawn from him, um, his injuries to be fully documented, uh, all types of body hair removed from him, head hair, arm hair, chest hair, leg hair, pubic hair, to compare um, saliva, fingerprints, you name it. Because obviously we're recovering physical evidence at this point. And to rule him in or rule him out, we needed all that stuff. And, you know, his attorney was cooperative. They met at a state police barracks. We had everybody on standby, including a phlebotomist to draw his blood. Um, and we had a search warrant for him. So he knew at this point we had already placed um, covert, which then became over surveillance on him as well. Um, you know, it's not easy in Connecticut to always do covert um surveillance on somebody so at that who, point, so who is this guy do we, his name and the yeah. age and- so his name is raymond clark the third um he was in his mid-20s at the time that this case was committed um or this crime is committed he had no record or anything that um we were aware of so you know like searching databases and seeing if he's ever been uh, uh, anything isn't easy to do unless there was an arrest which there weren't um his fiance he had a fiance at the time uh, she wouldn't speak to us his family members obviously wouldn't speak to us um post arrest there was a uh, ex-girlfriend that came forward didn't come to us went to good morning america uh, and spoke to them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, about him being abusive when they were together. Um, but by everything we knew, he was, a. there were no issues with him. You know, he played softball. We had detectives watching him playing softball. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. So nothing. Yeah, it's crazy that someone can kill someone and then be playing softball the next couple of days. Um, oh, yeah. But he went, uh, I mean, it was, did you guys develop a motive um, or was this just 
no motive. Um, the only thing that obviously to us makes sense, given the violent uh, way that she was killed, is he had a crush on her. He liked her and she wasn't interested. Um, we did a full forensic analysis of, at that time, you got to remember 2009, very different than now, um, of everything, her cell phone, her email, her social media. There was nothing between the two of them, nothing. We, we did search warrants for computers at his house and for, for computers in a common area of the condo association that he lived in, in case he went. There was nothing um, that would indicate anything between the two of them at all. Other than there was a couple professional work emails between again, but nothing, nothing. But so you think that he had some kind of, you know, obsession, maybe sexually she rebuffs him and then he just snaps and kills her. Yes. That's what we all think. Wow. And, and he's never since then, he's never, I assume he's in prison yes. uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, yes. He got a life sentence. He did not get life. Um, he got, um, I'm trying to think when he gets out. I think he theoretically, he'll be in his 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, Probably he, too soon. Yeah. Well, because he was charged with a uh, capital felony um, because of uh, during the commission of a murder, there was uh, another uh, felony that he was charged with. So um, it saved the family from going through what would have been a horrific trial um, because everybody would have testified to what she had suffered through at the hands of a monster. Um, and, and so the family has to okay the plea deal. They did. Um, we were ready to go to trial, obviously, it would have lasted a really long time because there was a lot of evidence, um, a lot, a lot. And it would have gone on for months um, just to get everything in that we had. And, and so, yeah, he pled guilty almost, almost, uh, I'm trying to think, almost a year to when he was arrested, I think. So it was a pretty, it was a pretty quick plea deal, um, which isn't normal, as you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so have you have you stayed in touch with Annie Lay's family? Have you have you talked to them in recent years or anything? Or I have answer? I have not. Um, early on, the lead detective in the case, uh, Detective Scott Bramfier, who was the lead, um, he had contact with uh, Jonathan and Annie's family. And in the past, like when we've done uh, all these shows that we've recorded and, and multiple investigators, myself included, and some of the others have been involved in CSP, FBI. Um, obviously, we reach out to Annie's family and not Jonathan, but Annie's family to make sure they're okay with it. And and that's really been it. Um they did bring a civil suit against Yale University. Um, Annie's family did. And so I, I couldn't tell you anything about that because it, it's sealed. Um, and so, you know, that was the last really that I had to do with them. Um, you know, and it's one of the things that a lot of investigators, because again, it, it's the volume. We, we really don't do a good job. And sometimes the families don't want 
us to be in communication with them because it's it's too painful. And we represent something to them that is horrific, right? The death of, of their loved one. And so they don't want anything to do with us either. Yeah. I, this is a difficult question, but you know, did Jonathan ever find someone else and move on or? I believe he did. Um, cause we still all talk about this case, me and the team, the lead team on this case. Um, it comes up actually more frequently than people would think. Um, and, and, you know, somebody along the lines had stated he had, um, moved on, but recently not, it wasn't something that happened right away as he should. Right. You know, he was young. Yeah. Um, when this happened. So God bless him. And obviously his, his new um, significant yeah. other and if there's any family and, and obviously Annie's family and friends. Yeah. I mean, she's, she touched the lives of so many people um, both prior coming to Yale and while she was at Yale university as well. I'm getting the chills from that. Uh, do you know if Annie had siblings? <sighs> yes. She had, I believe a brother who gave an impact statement at sentencing um, so I guess my, my final question, uh, not really a question all these years later, it's 14 years later, horrific crime, uh, you know, someone that potentially could have changed the world. Um, what, what, I mean, today, if you could sit down with Annie Lay's family, what would you say to them? I guess. Oh, that's so hard. And you just gave me chills. Um, <laughs> right. Cause it, you think about just everything. Um, I just hope they're at peace um as much as they can be and remember all the good that she did even um prior to yale um and even while she was at yale right and, and not focus in on the horror that she endured um you, you can't focus in on the horror you gotta always focus on the great and i know they do i do i i, I know that they definitely remember the good of her and her smile and her intelligence and all the beautiful things people had to say about her at her memorial service and and her high school and her undergrad college and, and even Yale University. I mean, everything that everybody said, it was just incredible. And that's what you remember. You don't want to remember that. Well, uh, this is definitely uh, an amazing episode of Surviving My Biggest Case. You just heard from Lisa Daddio, retired police lieutenant with the New Haven Police Department in Connecticut, about the biggest uh, case, a homicide case uh, involving Annie Lee, a Yale graduate student. Uh, since retiring from the New Haven PD, uh, Lisa is now working in higher ed at the University of New Haven. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I got the chills hearing this story and uh, wishing her family and the fiance, Jonathan, uh, the very best and the very best to you so uh thank you until next time love you america love you new haven love you yeah love you final seconds of the game a chance to score and the chance has gone begging if your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities Get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, 
Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash ranks. <laughs> 